Hi, my name is Lynn McTaggart. Welcome to my podcast, Living the New Science. In these podcasts, I'm covering some extraordinary discoveries by frontier scientists and other new thought leaders and why this changes everything we think about how our world works and also how we should live our lives. I have a fabulous treat for you, which is a conversation I'm gonna hold in the coming minutes, but we have a slight change. So I know this was advertised as Janet Atwood, but Janet has woken up with a terrible fever and flu. So she's giving me something that is an equal treat. And that is the opportunity to talk to Chris Atwood. Now, Chris, I've known Chris as long as I've known Janet. He's part of the Transformational Leadership Council of which I'm a part, uh, started by Jack Canfield, a group with all of the, the people you'd ever wanna meet in the personal development and um, new age arena. And Chris is amazing. So I wanna just give you a little bit of background about him. First of all, he's the co-author and really a fabulous ideas man with the passion test. He and Janet wrote this together, developed it together, taught it together. And he is besides that, he is, he likes to call himself a master of creating enlightened alliances. Um, he's also the co-author of another New York Times bestselling book, Hidden Riches. And he is the business partner of Janet, who is his ex-wife, probably his best friend, and believe it or not, the godmother to his children with his, his, his uh, subsequent wife. And I think that's what's most extraordinary about Janet and Chris, aside from all of the other amazing things that they do, they are essentially a model of a modern family and also about forgiveness, about love and about connection that these divorced people are best friends and so connected. And Janet is so connected to his wife. It's amazing, those two. They've also created all kinds of things. He's created some of the major strategy alliances in the transformational industry. He's been the CEO of more than a dozen companies. Um, he went from somebody who was in business, he was, or in the government, he was president of a government securities dealer in the early 80s, and then zoomed over into personal development, but also spiritual transformation. And we are going to be talking to him. He's coming to us from India, where he and Janet have been working with Tony Nader, who is the head of the... Uh, the TM organization, meditation, the amazing meditation organization um, begun by the Maharishi. And they've been spending time there working with the TM organization to organize massive meditations for world peace. He moved into meditation by spending eight to 10 hours a day in deep meditation, studying the Vedic literature of India, and functioning of human consciousness. So, wow, it's fabulous to have Chris with us. And so I wanna welcome him on this discussion of passion and what it means to find your passion in your life. Hi, Chris. Hi, Lynn, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me fill in for our great phenomenal Janet. Well, I'm delighted to have you here, just as I would be with Janet, too, because I know you are, you've been devoted to teaching people the passion test, too. So let's start with what is passion? What is, what is finding your passion? Yeah, so... So first of all, let me just apologize. This is the best lighting I can do here in India. So it's not quite as brilliant as you, Lynn, but they, 
but it is the result for me of finding my passions years ago and of being able to discover that what I love and care about is truth and really diving into the midst of truth. And that's what passion is all about. From Janice and my perspective, we define passion a little differently than most other people do. We say passion are the, your passions are the things you love and care about most, because when your life is connected to those things, then you feel passionate. You know, some people think, oh, my passions are when I'm really excited about doing something or I really I really love this particular activity. And it, that could be a passion, but but a passion could be your family, spending quality time with your family. A, a, a passion could be uh, being able to solve difficult problems. You know, a passion could be writing a best-selling book. A passion could be almost anything that you really love and care about deeply. And then it becomes a decision-making tool. And this is the point of the passion test, Lynn, as I think you know, is that we help, the passion test helps anyone discover their top five passions. And then whenever you're faced with a choice, a decision or an opportunity, then you look, now is this opportunity gonna help me bring me closer to the things I love and care about? Or is it gonna bring me farther away? And, and so in that way, what we've discovered in terms of finding your passions, that was your question, is that when you identify the things you really love and care about most, and then you consistently choose in favor of them, what, do you, what you discover is that over time, even if you can't write down, this is my life purpose, you begin to discover that life becomes meaningful, life becomes purposeful. You go, whoa, this is why I was put on this planet. Okay, and so this is where it starts. It begins by clarity. And we say when you're clear, what you choose to have show up in your life will, and only to the extent you're clear. So finding your passion is really about clarifying what are the things you love and care about most, and then beginning to make decisions consistently in favor of those things. I love that. It becomes essentially your guiding light. That's and right. it, exactly. it is your, your North Star. And then you know when something is the right decision, when something is the wrong decision. One of the things that I find so amazing when I work with students and we're working on intention is that so many people don't know what they really want. All they know is what they don't want. You know, when I ask <laughs> right. people to define their intentions and like the passion test, finding intentions is about being very specific, telling the universe what you want. But a lot of people don't know. What they know is that they don't want this job or they don't want this wife or husband or they right. don't want this partner or they don't want their current situation, financial or, or otherwise. They know what they don't want. And they also don't know how to breathe it live it, breathe it, think it. When I test people initially, and this is one of the things we do with our intention masterclass and some of my other courses, I have people just uh, start monitoring their thoughts for a week or two. And they're shocked at what happens. They're spending all of that valuable thinking time, all of that valuable breathing time, judging, judging themselves, judging everybody else. Yeah. Does my butt look fat in this? I hate my <laughs> hair today. I hate her hair today. You know, yeah. they're they're thinking that they're judging negatively. They're thinking negative thoughts. They're thinking divisive thoughts. They're not using that valuable thinking time for positive intention, much mm -hmm. less figuring out what they want to do with their lives. Yeah. And I also find something really interesting when people, as they get older, that desire to find what they were put on this earth to do seems to quicken. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested in our generation and even a bit younger, and I hope that some of the people listening on this call is, this is a generation that doesn't want to give up the ghost. This is a generation <laughs> that really wants to keep achieving and doing and being their best selves. And yeah. look at our look at our celebrities of, 60s, 70s, 80s. We've got Mick Jagger out there shaking his booty and he's 80 something. We've got Paul McCartney out there playing for three hour concerts and he's 80 something or Rod Stewart 
or so many of them. And then in the acting field, we've got somebody like Joan Collins, who is 90 something and still writing, still doing all sorts of things. We People have politicians in their 70s and 80s who are. <laughs> we have a lot of politicians who are not giving up and ought to. But yes, yes we've got gener this generation doesn't want to give up. They want yeah. to keep that. What was I supposed to do with my life is quickening even more. And Absolutely. I think about Bonnie Weir. She wrote mm. a, a book that was about, I think it was called The Ten greatest statements on your deathbed or something similar to that. And mm -hmm. she found that of the 10 things uh, that people told her as a hospice nurse, she was a hospice nurse. So she was always with the dying of mm -hmm. the 10 things they said to her, the most, the top number one was, I wish I had done more in my life that I wanted to do and not what other people told me to do. And I think that is the key element here of finding your passion. When you're ready to fall off the perch, you wanna say, I did what I was put on this earth to do. And so the first bit of it is really finding out what you were put on this earth to do. So Chris, tell a little bit about how you help people identify that. Yeah. So there are a number of things that you shared, Lynn, that are, I think, really instructive and point in this direction. Uh, one of the things, one of the big ahas for Janet and me was this realization that while I may want to know what my purpose is, I don't even have to be able to write it down or clearly state it. Because when I consistently choose in favor of my passions, my purpose begins to show up on its own. I don't have to try and figure it out. I don't have to say, oh, this is why I was put on this earth. The, it, one of the quotes from the passion test is that what you love and God's will for you are one and the same. There are so many things in our lives that we ignore. And one of the things that we don't really think about much, most people don't think about much, is why do I love the things I love? Why do I care about the things that I care about? The, the truth is that for everyone listening to this call, the things you love, the things you care about, the things that really matter to you are unique to you. And when you choose consistently in favor of activities, jobs, careers, relationships that bring you closer to those things that you really care about, then you discover that that purpose, that that meaning behind your life, and you begin to go, whoa, this is why I'm here. And, and to be honest with you, Lynn, for us, it was a big relief because to kind of, it seems like, wow, okay, how do I figure out what's my purpose? Why am I here? But when you begin to realize that it's not, it's a path, not a destination, okay, right? That it, it's a, and it's, sometimes it's a winding path, okay? But, but when you really stay connected to what you loved, when you really stay connected to what you care most about, then you find that that winding path gets surrounded by this kind of support that, what do you say, that the, the people, the places, the things that you need in order to move forward in your life seem to show up. And, and from my experience, Lynn, that's, that's one of the signs that you're on the path of your purpose. You know, I'm in India, as you've shared uh, right now, near Chennai in India, and one of those ancient Sanskrit terms is dharma. And many of us have heard the word dharma in the West by now because many of these terms have come. But what dharma really means is being aligned with the laws of nature to live the purpose for which you were born. Okay, And being aligned with the laws of nature means that life begins to flow. And this is our experience, not only for Janet and me, but having taught thousands of people all over the world that... When people consistently choose in favor of their passions, what they begin to discover is that sometimes life is still difficult. Sometimes there's still challenges to overcome. But those seem like 
challenges. They don't seem like overwhelming problems. They seem, they kind of make the whole thing, the game more fun, if you will, you know, because if everything is easy all the time, it kind of gets boring, but you have the challenge, but you feel inside, nothing can stop me because I am going to do this because this is my passion. This is my purpose. This is the reason that I was born. And when you're in that place, then it feels like you're kind of the the analogy or the metaphor I use, Lynn, is that it's kind of like if you imagine life is like a river, you know, it's sort of flowing, and you're and when you're aligned with your passions, when you're aligned with that meaning, purpose, dharma in your life, it's then it's like you are in an inner tube floating down the middle of the river, and the river just carries you along, and sometimes there's it goes a little faster, sometimes a little slower, sometimes you. You bump a little bit over the rapids, but still, it's just this beautiful, wonderful, flowing experience. Unfortunately, what most people do is that they fight against the current, right? And they they try and get, I want what I want. I want, you know, I want it my, or I've been taught I have to have this if I'm going to be happy, or I have to have that if I'm going to be happy. And so they go trying to get that and they they scratch and they crawl and they and they get scratched up by all the brambles on the side of the river you know as they get banged up against the rocks and for many people life becomes a suffering becomes very difficult and you know Gallup for some years has been doing engagement studies engagement is a kind of measure of whether people are passionate about the work they do right Gallup said 15 percent of the working population in the, in the world is is engaged, is passionate, is excited, is loving the work they do. 85% are not, you know? And so is it any surprise that we live in a world that doesn't seem to work very well often? Because imagine if you had, what? Uh, imagine you had a machine or imagine you had a body, for example. Imagine you have a heart that only 15% of it was actually working properly. It was only working properly 15% of the time. You'd have a pretty sick body, right? And unfortunately, this is the state of our society, is that, that people are out of alignment with Dharma. They're out of alignment with the reason for which they were born. They, and and they, we've been indoctrinated into what we should have or should do or should wear or should achieve instead of what our heart tells us, what, what, what we really feel deeply connected to. Now, if I may, Lynn, I want to make one comment about one of the things you said at the beginning uh, of your your comments that people often, when they're setting intentions, they think about what they don't want, and and of course we have that same experience. Needless to say, what's great about being clear about what you don't want is that if you turn it around to the opposite, it helps you discover what you do want, and so. We find that it doesn't really matter. Our, our brains somehow were most, almost all of us have been trained to look at what's wrong, right? What, what's not going well? What do I need to change? You know, as you said, well, you know, why doesn't my butt fit in that, <laughs> that thing right there? You know, whatever. We look at what's not, what we don't like, but we can turn that into something useful to help us get clear on our intentions and on our passions by turning it around and say, uh, the example I use often is that I, I for maybe I, I never want to be surrounded by people who lie, cheat, or steal, for example, right? Because maybe I've been burned. Maybe someone did that to me. Well, you can turn it around and say, I want to always be surrounded by people who are honest, generous, and supportive. And now you know what you love. You know what you want. You want Because that was such a strong emotional experience in the negative direction now bring it over to the positive and see this is what I do want, the opposite of that, you know? So we can use what we don't want. And 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 your work on intention of intentions is so important because the, you know, it is, as you mentioned in my introduction, I spent quite a few years studying the Vedic tradition of India. And, and in that tradition, there is number one, of course, this concept of of um, samadhi, of of transcendence, of experiencing consciousness in its purity. What you wrote about to experience the field directly, right? But then there's also this concept of sanyama, and sanyama is to be able to 
be allow the mind to be in that field, that field that you wrote a book about, that field of pure awareness, pure consciousness, and then have a thought. And in this case, a specific thought, which is an intention. And what the Vedic tradition says is that when the mind is is connected to that source of intelligence, that source of creativity that you call the field. And then we have an intention. We introduce an intention within that. Then that intention becomes incredibly powerful. That intention can actually change the world in dramatic ways, as, as you have shown and proven in many of your experiments, right? And so the passion test is one way in our personal lives of getting clear about what are my intentions for my own life and how can I connect myself, intentionally connect myself to the things that I love, that I care about, that matter most to me. Hmm? Absolutely, thank you for all of that. And I think what's really fascinating is what happens with a group. And mm. one thing that you said, I'll first talk about entering that state of pure consciousness. One thing that we've discovered through our brainwave studies, I wanted to find out why group intention was so powerful. Why was this supersizing intentions? Why were we getting all of the amazing effects with the intention experiments using large group intentions? And then why were we getting fabulous effects with power of eight groups, small groups of eight or so. And for people who are listening from Janet's side of the broadcast, I ran 41 intention experiments I've run to date, uh, working with scientists at prestigious universities and inviting my readers from around the globe to take part in these experiments. While they were measured, the outcomes were measured and we did everything from trying to make seeds grow faster and affecting subtle effects of leaves to purifying water to lowering violence in war-torn or violent areas. We've done about 12 of those and to even healing people of things like post-traumatic stress disorder. Of the 41, 37 have shown measurable, positive, mostly significant effect as measured by these teams of scientists. With my power of eight groups, these are just small groups of eight or so. I put people into a group. I help them learn how to use intention, 13 keys to intention mastery, as I, as I call it. And they then work their intentions. They, they work on sending or receiving intentions. And it's both because they're working regularly with a power of eight group, as I call them. And they work in that small group to achieve their intentions. And we have found extraordinary effects. I just came back from San Diego and I gave a talk there and I put people into groups. We had loads of people who were in terrible pain, get out of pain, had a woman with Lyme disease. And the group did one 10 minute intention for her. That was it. And her knee had been destroyed by Lyme. And after that, she was able to walk on it normally again. But my favorite story was a guy who was paralyzed on his right side from a drug treatment from a decade ago uh, that was attempting to heal something in his spine and ended up paralyzing his whole right side. He did everything to try to get back movement and feeling. And he got back some of it, but still his sh right shoulder and right leg were still not moving properly. One 10 minute intention for the first time. And he came up to me and I videoed him walking and talking about it, how he was normal and out of any pain. So that's the just an example of the supersizing effect. Yeah. But what we found in these brainwave studies, and this is really important about this whole idea of entering the field or feeling the field. Lots of people ask me, how do I enter the field? And I say, you don't have to enter it. There's no doorway here. You're already in the field. Your subatomic particles and everybody else and everything else's subatomic particles are doing a little tennis game 
all the time. They're trading information back and forth, energy back and forth too. And you're there, but we don't experience life like that. We right. experience life in separation. We experience life as lonely little people on a lonely planet in a lonely universe. So what we discovered doing brainwave studies on power of eight groups. And in this case, I worked with Life University, the largest chiropractic university in the world. They put their team of neuroscientists at my disposal and we set up experiments using seven groups of student volunteers. Um, total novices, hadn't even meditated before. And we put an EEG cap on one member of each of the group and what we discovered to our astonishment was the brainwave studies that came out of them looked nothing like meditation. We thought they were gonna look identical to meditation. They did not. They looked completely opposite. And what we did find was the parts of the brain that make us feel separate were turning off. So the parietal lobes, which are right back here, they help us navigate through space. They tell us, this is me. This is not me. And the front, right frontal lobes, which are involved with worry, doubt, negativity, they were also dialed way down. And so these brainwave signatures looked nothing like those of meditation, as I say, but they looked almost identical to the work of the University of Pennsylvania. Andrew, Dr. Andrew Newberg, the neuroscientist who studied Sufi masters during ecstatic prayer and uh, Buddhist monks during, um, oh, sorry, Sufi masters during chanting and Buddhist monks during ecstatic prayer, nuns during ecstatic prayer, they found the exact same brainwave signature. So our little student volunteers were essentially in a state of ecstatic oneness. And I think that people get to experience oneness in a power of eight group. We don't, unless we learn all kinds of practices and practice for many years or prime ourselves for many years, but for some extraordinary reason, doing intention in a group just elevates consciousness to experiencing a state of oneness. And for me, oneness is the super sauce here. It's the reason why we see these kinds of results. The other thing I wanted to say is that a group seems to help identify that passion. Mm -hmm. Something about a group. Yeah, I love, I, I was just writing about a woman called Patty Rutledge today, who was one of my students who everything in her life was not working. She had chronic fatigue. She had um, uh, bad relations with her stepchildren. She had difficulties with her step demanding stepmother. Her husband was overweight and she was 40 pounds overweight. She was worried about him. As a doctor, he didn't want to know about any alternative treatments. And she had such bad chronic fatigue. She would walk the dog for 10 minutes and then have to spend the afternoon in bed. Um, and she didn't know what she wanted to do with her life. She wanted to be of service, didn't know what. What helped her was being in this group. And as she always puts it, making a public vow and their intentions for her in making that public vow. So there was a follow through that she almost felt obliged to do. So that's one of the many things that happen in a group. But mm -hmm. also there's something about people intending for you mm -hmm. that helps to put you on the path. I've seen that so many times. Absolutely. You know, um, one of the one of the acronyms that we've taught our children, as you mentioned, you mentioned I have uh, three children and they're now nine, 13 and about to turn 13, about to turn 16. And uh, yeah. And so you can ask them, what does team stand for? And they'll say together, everyone achieves miracles. And to, and to me, that's really what you're talking about. A group is really about having a team of people, a supportive group of people who 
who hold intentions for you. You know, one of the things we've discovered, as I'm sure you've seen this as well, Lynn, is that when you're surrounded by people who are always naysaying your passions, naysaying, you know, who are who are saying, oh, you can't do that. What's wrong with you? You know, why are you being so stupid? Why why don't you be practical? You know, you when you're surrounded by people like that, in the same way you say a group has a positive effect, that kind of group has a negative effect. It has a dampening effect. On, and so by one of the key things in terms of living your passions, living your purpose is to surround yourself with people who believe in you, people mm -hmm. who support you, people who will hold intentions for you that that are supportive of you, your life, your fulfillment, your joy. You know, that this is one of the, the key and important aspects because we are all affected by everyone around us. And and I love what you were saying about groups, uh, Lynn, because as you know, because we were just talking about it earlier today, that the reason that I'm in India right now is because Dr. Nader, as you mentioned, the current uh, uh, leader of the Transcendental Meditation Organization worldwide, just gathered 10,000 advanced meditators in Hyderabad, India, for the purpose of one intention, to create peace and harmony, reduce conflict in the world. And and it was really quite a remarkable event. And they, as the as the whole group settled into this experience, that that oneness experience that you were talking about, that experience of of the field, if you will, became so tangible. It was like you could almost reach out and touch it. You know, it's just so powerful, so so and so wonderful. I mean, you know, because one of the things that happens is. You know, in in a group like that, is bliss just begins bubbling up. You, the, there's the laughter begins to bubbling up, the joy begins to bubble up, and so to be in a group of people who are supportive, who are loving, who are kind, who are caring, who recognize that even when you don't believe in yourself, that the best thing they can do for you is to to believe in you. These, that's invaluable, incredibly, because all of us doubt ourselves. Who who hasn't? Lynn, let me ask you, have you ever doubted yourself in your life? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I we mean, all do, right? We all yeah. do. We all, we all do. do. We yeah. all need each other. I mean, I think this is the, my point, really, is that no matter how perfect someone may seem, you know, when you see them in public, all of us have our challenges. All of us have times when we wonder, well, can I really do this? Can I get through this? Can Will this work? You know, all of these sorts of things. And so to be able to be surrounded by people who are loving, kind, caring, believe in you, hold intentions for your well-being is one of the most important lessons any one of us can live. Because when we're feeling down, to have we have other people to help bring us up again and that and we do influence it each other deeply so it's it's so 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 important i i love everything you said and as you say sometime that tribe that has your back isn't necessarily your family most no. of the time it is but yeah. many times it isn't a family is you know oftentimes they feel their job is to bring you down to earth and right. then, and they've also known you when you've been young and silly and stupid, and they remind you of that fact a lot of the time. So, you know, it's hard for them to see you as an, an adult, fully realized human being. So when you have a tribe of strangers, you know, this is what I hear over and over again with my Power of Eight groups, with my master class, where I put people in groups in their time zone at their preferred meeting time and ask them to meet once a week for an hour for an entire year. By the end of that, they always talk about their intention family. They cry when they talk about them because these are people who started out as total strangers but have come together with a common purpose and it becomes their intention family, the people who have their back. And many of them talk about, I love the story of Jerry. Jerry joined during COVID. And he said at the end of the year, I love this so much. I've felt more love in my life than ever before. I'm done, I've done better in the COVID season. When we were all locked down, they were meeting virtually. And as my groups always do. 
And he said, I've had more love than I ever had in my life. So much so he joined the next year. And by the end, and he went all over it again. And by the end of the next year, he said, I now know what love is. And I think this is it. I hear over and over again, people saying, I've had insomnia, but one of my members of the group, I remember Robert um, Morales and Mitchell Dean, they became good friends in the group. And Mitchell would say, wow, Robert, I would tell Robert I had insomnia. And he said, don't worry, I had your back. He was up intending for him. And that's the kind of amazing support we see that is extraordinary. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about is rebound effects. Because you said in your meditators, they all felt bliss. They felt it was tangible. We see that too. And we're not even in the same place together. When we're doing intention experiments, let's take the recent Israel-Gaza intention experiments we did. We did three of them. We had 30,000 people participating. This is, remember, people participating virtually. So they're all on their computers, like we are now, in their own separate spaces. However, what we get, and I survey people after every intention experiment, it's all part of the research. And I find over and over again, people reporting, not only on the experience itself, they all talk about feeling heat and crying uncontrollably and uh, goosebumps up and down their uh, arms and feeling extraordinary energy. And when I've done it, I've had to stand away from my computer. The energy feels so strong. And I remind everybody, everybody's separate in front of their own computers. And we're still creating that extraordinary psychic internet, as I like to call it. But afterward, and here's the thing, afterward, they report on peace in their own lives. They talk about how they made up with that estranged partner or child, a child, adult child, or they're getting along better with their coworkers or boss. And about half always report they're more in love with everybody they come in contact with. And I've been basically going, WTF is going on here? What is going on? How can you send intention and have this rebound in this way? And they also report healings, about a third report healings mm -hmm. um, every single time of physical symptoms in themselves. Uh, recently, we had somebody with type 1 diabetes, blood sugar, blood glucose, regular for the first time in many a year, and many things like that, people out of pain. There's something about this group effect and this altruistic enterprise which is what we're doing, what you were just describing, that ends up being having a mirror effect. And that's what we also see in power of eight groups, small groups, people finding their purpose, not just when they're receiving intention from their group, but when they're sending it. You know, I see many, many people, um, I think of Eileen, who was a, she was a journalist for mainstream publication, a mainstream newspaper. She finally retired. And 12 years later, she was still not writing that book she'd always promised herself she was going to write. And when she, as soon as she did the group for a year, lo and behold, she held up the book. She'd written the book, she'd finished the book, and she'd published the book. So... It's that kind of thing that happens, I think. This rebound effect, part of the real element of passion and finding your passion has to do with sending intention for somebody else's good. Do you see that too? Yeah, well, I wanna come back to this wonderful book by Lynn McTaggart called The Field. This, um, <laughs> because you know, when you understand the nature of that field, that field of consciousness, and, you know, I, as you mentioned, I've been working close to Janet, and I've been, both been working closely with Dr. Tony Nader. He has a book coming out later this year called Consciousness is All There Is, which is also the essence of the field, is that all the field is, permeates, consciousness permeates, exists everywhere. So from our perspective, we may think we're sending something out, 
But when we're really operating from within that field, there is no in and out, you know, the, the, we can think it's a rebound effect, but it's actually an effect within the field that we experience. And as you have written about, you know, Lynn, that in that field, that field itself is beyond time and space. You know, this concept of separation is a concept, it's an illusion uh, manufactured by the limitations of our senses, which can, you know, our eyes can only see a certain bandwidth, you know, uh, our ears can only hear certain, uh, certain um, audio wavelengths. Uh, you know, our senses really define our experience of reality, but they don't tell us the truth of what that reality is. And, and for me, what you wrote about in the field was really bringing this out that that there's more to life than meets the eye so to speak <laughs> right and and your intention experiments your intention experiments and also these large group practices with you know as you know i think lynn for more than 40 years the tm organization has been sponsoring large groups to come together to create effects and the, the effects have been massive and substantial and have been very, you know, over 30 studies have been published in peer-reviewed journals showing that conflict goes down, crime goes down, hospital admissions go down, that the, 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 even they measured even the, the commentary between uh, government leaders and it changes from negative to positive, all these kinds of things, right? And the that you know it's i have to say to be real honest it's mystified me why is it that when there's such powerful research on tm on your intention experiments the, you know the the evidence is there it's published it's been reviewed by people who have no association with our organizations they the the tm research has been hailed as some of the the highest quality research done in the social sciences and yet, no government says, okay, let's put this into practice. Let's, you know, the, the cost from the, you know, from the model that the TM organization uses, we would maintain a large group specifically for this purpose. Well, the cost of that is less than one day of war in the <laughs> Gaza Strip, you know? I mean, yeah. come on. It's like, so I... I, I ask myself why is it you know the evidence is irrefutable the the science is solid the why is it that people can't believe it take it up and and the only conclusion i can come to is that most people particularly powerful people have the ability to implement large projects are stuck in the materialist paradigm, this idea that the physical world defined by our senses is reality. And that if something, how is it possible that people in one place can affect people on the other side of the world? Well, that obviously must be impossible, right? Because the, that doesn't fit the, the Newtonian physics model that you have a ball which has to be hit by another ball to create some action, you know? And so, this is why I think your book, The Field, was so important. I think why Dr. Nader's book, Dr. Nader in his book, Consciousness is All There Is, lays out step by step the logic and the science of why it has to be true that consciousness is fundamental and how it is that the physical world emerges from consciousness, how and why that happens. And, and I'm hopeful <laughs> that as we keep chipping away at these beliefs that we can help more and more people, starting with the people on this call, to recognize that our senses provide us a limited understanding of reality. And there's much more here. There's much a much deeper level of experience. And that deeper level of experience has the opportunity to provide us with miracles, the kind of miracles that Lynn has been talking about, right? The, but to be able to take advantage of that, we have to be able to appreciate and understand that the field is omnipresent beyond time and space, that it permeates everything, that there is no place outside of that field. And so when I sit at my computer here, of course I can, just as you and I, Lynn, you're in London, right? 
the yeah. well we're we're a long way away but somehow we can talk to each other right and our brains have ways of explaining that's true but the truth is is that we are in very different spaces in the same time and yet we can experience something simultaneously and your intention experiments are doing that you know by bringing thousands of people together at the same time in different spaces we're able to tap into that level that is beyond time and space and be able to experience the effects not just on the other side of the world but as you're describing in our own lives in my own heart in my own mind in my own day-to-day -day living because that field is not bound by time and space right absolutely and you know the science backs that up and by the way while the governments have not agreed that consciousness is all that there is i mean a very conservative publication called nature one of the conservative mm. um scientific journals and one of the most prestigious on the planet published an article some years ago called everything is mental and it was by a quantum physicist who said essentially exactly what you just did, but through science. And of course, quantum physics says this anyway. This is exactly the implications of quantum physics, which ordinary scientists, not those who are the pioneers I've written about, who really understood the implications of this, but mainstream scientists basically love quantum physics because it the math works and that's all that counts as far as they're yeah, concerned that's right. yeah. they don't stop they don't pause to think about well what does this all mean but yeah. the science definitely shows there's no time or space there's enormous studies showing that things like intention work out of time and in fact i teach that in my retreats in some of my courses, I actually work with retro intention. We don't change what happened. We change the energy around what mm -hmm. happened. And yeah, the yeah. energy, as we all are fundamentally, simply energy. Little packets mm -hmm. of energy, trading information and energy with other packets of information. That's who we really are. We can change that energy, and we've demonstrated it. I want to, may I, Lynn, forgive me for interrupting, but I just have to share this quote from Max Planck was, as you I'm sure know, was one of the founders, one of the, the founding scientists who uncovered this whole quantum mechanical quantum field aspect of life, which functions very differently than the Newtonian perspective. The And what Max Planck said is, I regard consciousness as fundamental. I regard matter as derivative from consciousness. We cannot get behind consciousness. Everything we talk about, everything that we regard as existing, postulates consciousness. This is one of the foremost quantum physicists of the 20th century, you know. Absolutely. He came up with the word quantum. Um, yeah, it is, quantum yeah. is a little leap. It's a teeny leap. It's not a giant leap. It's been misused in the regular language. But mm. um, but yes, exactly. Consciousness is all there is. No question. Okay. And we are creating at every moment. That's what we have to get. And that's why intentions, passion are so important because what you're putting out there in the world is creating it. I wanted to talk a little bit about negativity. So one thing I wanted to talk about with negative intention, one mm. of the things that I've discovered and now teach is the power of your central passion, your life purpose, and how it can mm. protect you. I give you an example. People ask me all the time about, well, how do I protect myself against negativity? my own and everybody else's. And that's a big and important question these days, isn't it? You know, we're all surrounded by so much bad news. You know, we're all suffering from a form of post-traumatic stress disorder after COVID, after the isolation of COVID and the fear of COVID, and now the fear of war and the fear of uh, our government's not seeming to know what the heck to do and et cetera, et cetera. So, 
I discovered that, you know, a lot of scientists talk about, oh yeah, you can block intention by imagining a moat or a bubble or all of these things. And that never made much sense to me because I thought, wait a minute, if we're all one here, if we're all part of one big field, why would you want to shield yourself off from that? What you need to do is, is go beyond that somehow so that you're not shielding yourself, but negativity is essentially bouncing off of you. And what I do is I have some techniques that I show people in my master class about how to overcome your own negativity and everyone else's. But one of the central aspects of this is holding on to the thought of what you were born to do. John Diamond, um, the great late um, man who discovered behavioral kinesiology, that is the stuff with muscle testing, that George Goodhart discovered it with noxious substances created weak muscles so that when somebody else pushed it down, it would just go right down if you put an allergen on their tongue. But John, who is who was a psychiatrist, discovered the same thing happens with toxic thoughts. And he found if you say, you know, your mother didn't love you, boom, or your neighbor that you can't stand is at the front door, boom, or your tires flat, boom, <laughs> it would all go down except when using a special technique of holding on to your, your, the thought of what you were put on this earth to do. And as you said, Chris, doesn't have to be being president of the United States. Doesn't have to even be your work, your job, your career. It can be your role as a mother or a father. It can yes. be your role as a cook, your ability to make the perfect chocolate cake. That can be your that can be your passion in life, but it is that passion that acts like essentially a bulletproof vest. When negative negativity is all around you, you can be impervious to it. In fact, you can repel it and change it in the people who are thinking it, they change too. Yeah. This is the amazing dynamic property of this energy and the power of intention and particularly group intention. I'm really glad that you brought this up because um, your passions, the things as Janet and I described and the things you love and care about most are those things that keep you aligned. Keep, they, they are like a protective bubble, but without having the bubble, right? They, they're, they're those things that keep you grounded in love instead of what you don't want or what or what people think about you or one thing or another. I'll tell you, one of the things that Janet and I have discovered, one of the biggest things that prevents people from really following their passions, you know, I mean, as you know, we've taught hundreds of thousands of people around the world now how to discover their top five passions. And then we'd come back and and some of them, not all, but some of them would go, well, but I have a hard time following my passions. You know, I have so much pressure from my family and this and that. And what we discovered is that, and this is why Janet now, as you know, Lynn teaches courses on mastering self-love, is that until you really are able to, to appreciate the beauty of that is here, to appreciate and love who this person is, it's very difficult to hold on to those passions because all of us have been indoctrinated. Let's face it, you know, we've all been trained since we were this high <laughs> to believe certain things in, in general, not everyone, but most people. We, we have a lot of social conditioning about who we are, who we need to be in order to be successful or to be lovable or to be, you know, all of these things. And so the, the kind of tools that you and Janet teach to be able to overcome that social conditioning to me is a really key and critical piece of people being able to embrace and to live their passions fully. And then the other thing is you, we talked about Lynn, that, that Janet and I, Janet in particular has been doing is say, well, can we get people before they get that social conditioning, right? So can we, can we 
Can we help kids? Can we help the nine-year-olds, the 10-year-olds, 11, the 12, the 13, 15-year-olds? Can we help them start to believe in themselves, start to feel passionate about their own lives, start to discover the things that they love and care about and to begin to consistently choose in favor of those? And so that's why Janet has this program that is teaching at the end of March called the Passion Test for Kids and Teens. It's a certification program, so it's really for adults who want to be able to learn how to help kids love themselves, number one, and two, be able to discover and live their passions. It's a, you know, working with kids, as I'm sure you're aware, Lynn, it's very different than working with adults. And so to develop the, the, the Passions for Kids and Teens, we worked very closely with our mutual dear friend, Bobby DePorter, who we call the, the mother of accelerated learning, right? Is she, is she, this is the woman who's taught some of the most famous people on the planet, how to teach effectively. Everyone from Tony Robbins to Jack Canfield to Spencer Johnson, who wrote the uh, One Minute Manager, you know, all kinds of people, T. Harvecker, lots of people. And so she worked hand in hand with us to design a program for kids that would allow the kids to discover their passions, but do it in such a fun and engaging way that afterwards they go, wow, that was the best experience I've ever had. And so then with, that's our tricky way of bypassing all the social conditioning, right? Is <laughs> we get to them before it's too late. But but for you know, for us as adults, oftentimes we do have to have some tools to kind of unwind the beliefs and concepts that we've been indoctrinated with, that we've been conditioned to believe about ourselves, about what's possible for us, about what we can and can't do, you know, what what our what our responsibilities are, all of these things, you know, uh, how we look, how we talk, how who we have as friends. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And 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 it's really critical in in my experience, Janet's experience, uh, to just as you're saying, Lynn, to to address those things and then to recognize and this is one of the things that we see in the happiest people on the planet is that that those are the people who've been able to take any situation in their life and find where's the big gift where's the benefit how does this as horrible as horrendous as awful as that experience may have been or to go through how does it help me to grow how does it help me to become a fuller deeper, more expanded person. And, and there are people like that, believe it or not, there are really people like that in the world. Many of them are friends of Lynn and mine. <laughs> but, the, but it really is the case is that when you spend time around these people, you see, wow, these people are happy. They're joyful because where is their attention? There is a ten their attention is always on what's good. They're, even in the most negative situation, their attention is on where's the silver lining? Where's the benefit? Where's the thing that can enrich my life in some way, shape, or form? And, and to me, this is the habit that all of us can benefit from developing. I just want, I do want to say one thing about this because as you know, and as probably most of the people on this call have guessed, I've lived a pretty spiritual life. I've been pretty devoted to, to a spiritual life. And and yet, like everyone, I've had challenges in my own life as well. And, and there was a time where something, you know, upsetting would happen. And I'd say, well, it's a gift. It will pass. You know, there, there's some benefit to this. Uh, you know, it, it, it's for my own good. All of those things are absolutely true. But what I realized and what I discovered is if I started saying that stuff to myself before I allowed myself to feel how really crappy it felt in that moment, it was like spiritual bypassing. You know, it was like going around and not allowing myself to release the wounds, the inner the psychic spiritual wounds that were inside. And and so and same sort of it's not as extreme, but it's the kind most people try to avoid pain by drinking alcohol or drugs or shopping too much or working too much or something or other. But as a spiritual person, I discovered that I can do the same thing by trying to find the gift too soon. So I just wanted to throw that in, that it's really important that we allow ourselves to feel our feelings, even if it means we have to sob our eyes out for a while. Yeah. 
Yeah. At some point, at some point that will pass. And when yeah. it passes, that's the time now to say, okay, where is the gift in this? Where, how will this benefit me? How will this enrich my life in some way? I love that. Thank you, Chris, for that. I mean, part of the work that I do too with in our retreats, our Heal Your Past retreats, and by the way, we've just opened the doors on our retreat at Broughton Hall that is going to be in September. I'm going to be working with my husband, Brian Hubbard, who invented the whole system, timelight system about healing your past after healing what is probably one of the worst pasts I've ever heard of uh, in terms of his relationship to his father. Uh, so after learning how to do this himself, he's now teaching the world. Well, one of the things that we find is a very sad thing. And this is the state of the world. We read out, he reads out the 18 adverse childhood events and they are everything from your parent yelled at you to your parent raped you uh, and everything in between. And the people who attend are invariably raising their hand when we read them out, this happened to them and sometimes they're four or five or more things that have happened to them that are incredibly painful things that are still inside them the energy still invades them like an unwanted guest and is there like it happened yesterday. And that's one of the things we help them to release. And that happens there. But what really happens is the power and the safety of the cauldron of a group. Mm -hmm. When I see these small groups at work, when people are meeting week after week after week, People who were terrified of even speaking become able to express themselves. I think of several. I think of um, Marianne. When I met Marianne, she couldn't speak above a whisper. She joined a retreat of ours, and then she joined the master class. She was in a soulless job she hated as a researcher, a lab technician, in probably a, a, a small town at the very top of Canada. So she was there in the middle of nowhere at a job she hated alone. She got together with this group and met week after week after week. I got a picture of her after the event. She had left her job. She had become what she really wanted to be, which was a therapist. And she started driving a purple motorcycle. So this was a totally transformed person <laughs> thanks to that comfort, security, support, and intention power of the group. And I think of a woman called Andrea, who was in my master class last year. And she used to sit there being very comfortable sending other people intention, but didn't feel worthy enough to ask for one herself. But with the experience of working over and over and over with a group, with that safe container, she then timidly put forward some intention she wanted, wanted and then realized, oh, I deserve to get this too. I have a right to ask for this too. And I have a right to receive. And then she started receiving her intentions too. So it is extraordinary what can happen with that container for people to be safe enough to express, as you say, don't try to bypass pain, but to express it. You know, when you, I mean, I think of that, that saying that uh, I think it was, um, he wrote a book, I think I'm just a, Ripoche, I think his name was, and he said, don't, when you see something painful on TV, don't bypass it or turn it on. Watch it, absorb it, feel it, and understand how you have been so blind to suffering. And in that, I think that's there's some great kernels of truth and wisdom in that. So Chris, I think we've come to the end of our time together, but it's been brilliant. 
you are you. a font of wisdom and I feel more peaceful just being in your presence. I have to. And, <laughs> well, uh, Lynn, I, I, I have to say, I feel more inspired being in your presence. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, do give Janet our best and our best yes. for her swift healing. Thank you so much for coming in. I know that you've partnered in all of this and Chris is, as well as Janet, is brilliant on teaching the passion test. So we're putting in all of the chat how to get hold of Chris um, and Janet for their work, but you wanna give them a good website to contact you and find out more about the passion test. I think if they just go to thepassiontest.com, that's the simplest thing, thepassiontest.com. And as I mentioned, when you go there, there's a short quiz that can give you, a, it's kind of a quick assessment of to what extent are you living your passions right now. And then if you want to go on and take the passion test to discover your top five passions, it'll lead you on to that as well. I also just, if I may, Lynn, just want to invite anyone who is on the call who may be working with children, with younger people, with people between the ages of nine and 18, that... It really is an inspiration to work with young people and help them to discover their passions, to help them connect with, with who they really are and, and to be able to bypass the social conditioning that so many of us had to live. So there is this Passion Test for Kids and Teens certification course coming up at the end of March. And, and uh, if anyone is interested in the, that I, or works in this field with young people, I would highly recommend it. Mm. And I would really recommend it too. Working with Janet must be amazing. She's amazing mm. as a friend and I'm inspired every time I see her. I know she lives her passion every single day. And for me, if you'd like to study with me, our masterclass, Power of Eight Intention Masterclass kicks off. February 17th, it starts with six two-hour sessions live and interactive with me on Zoom. And then we put you into groups in your time zone, in your preferred meeting time, and you meet with them for an hour a week for an entire year. You get continual coaching by me. You get continual monitoring about how you're doing. And at the end of the year, as we've seen thousands of times, People's entire lives change, and that group doesn't end there. We have people who've been meeting since 2013. So mm. thank you all for listening. Thank you, Chris, so much for coming on. It's been a joy. Thank and you so much, Lynn. You can check, by the way, check out my all of my material on lynnmctaggart.com. Mm.